Okay, everybody, hate to move it along. We are three minutes behind, and I am going to start praying. Everyone, grab yourself a seat. You can get coffee. Don't let me stop you, anyone, from getting coffee. Just understand that I'm going to be praying in the background while we do it. All right, let's have a word of prayer. (coughs) Excuse me. And we will jump in. God, Lord, you you are truly awesome and powerful. God, you are the creator. Uh, You hold our salvation in your hand. You have all the wisdom and the knowledge. And God, we are so grateful that we can come to you in prayer. And Lord, we are but sinners. Uh, At best, uh, we are filthy rags. Our heart is deceitfully wicked. And Lord, you love us anyhow. And we are so grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son to die for our sins. Thank you, Lord, that we can get together on a Friday night and meet here and study the Bible and, and hopefully learn some more about you. And God, uh, we just want to ask that you would please be here uh, with us tonight. Lord, if uh, Patrick Hayes is in charge of tonight, it's going to be a train wreck. So we would ask that you would be the one guiding and directing. Please speak through me. Please give us a soft heart. Help us to learn about you. And Lord, uh, help us to forget about Whatever we had to go through in this last week, whether it be work or family or anything that brought us stress and anxiety, help us now, please, Lord, to just focus on you and, and, uh, and God, uh, just thank you for being here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So this evening, <clears throat> we are going to try to go through Acts chapter 26. We are going to start by going up. So this is the way I think tonight's going to go. We are going to start out in the weeds and we're going to go for a few minutes and I'm going to cover a subject that isn't covered too often. And we needed to bring it up sooner or later. So we're just going to talk about it tonight and we're going to see how it goes. So jump on in. What's up, buddy? Good. Good to see you. So we're going to start here. All right. Let's see how this goes. Does Has anyone ever heard of this theory? Anyone ever hear that? 10 lost tribes. Okay, so we've heard that phrase. So I'm going to go over that, and I'm going to explain the issues. Now, I'm going to start out by showing you my hand. This is nonsense. It is unbiblical, and it is a dangerous theory. So I'm going to show you what this is, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Excuse me. And I'm going to show you how you can debunk this theory with just a couple of verses. It's very easy. But this causes a lot of problems. So I'm going to, we're just going to cover this. So there are many groups that believe that the 10 northern tribes, all but the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, were lost and gone sometime around 634 BC. Now I have a timeline up here, and these are some dates that are going to be important and will run over them. Does anyone know what happened in 891 BC? 
Now, I don't expect anyone to know that number. It's not a real popular one, but I like numbers. I like maps. I like stuff like that. Anyone want to guess? What's that? So, so that is the start. So what happened was in 891... Hey, get me another marker, Mac. This green one isn't working. See if you can find me another one. In 891, King Solomon dies. We all know who King Solomon is? King Solomon is the son of... Okay, thank you. <laughs> and he's the father of... Yeah, he's the father of Rehoboam, but we'll get into that. Thank you, Mac. Rehoboam, <clears throat> the two names that are pertinent to today's discussion are Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Now, we're not going to talk about those two kings much, but I want to give you the snapshot here, give you the whole picture. So what happens is King Solomon dies, and when King Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, takes over as king. At the time that this happens, the there was a split. And let me see. Yeah, I'm just going to, I didn't write out the details, so I'm just going to tell you the story. So when King Solomon dies, he has a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam takes over as king. There's another gentleman named Jeroboam. Jeroboam is not in the lineage of King David. He's not in that family. As a matter of fact, at this time when Solomon dies, he's in Egypt. His father ended up serving uh, King Solomon and King David before. And you can read about this in the book of 1 Kings. Now what happens is King Rehoboam, Solomon's son, ends up doing a pretty poor job of being a king right out of the gate. He went to all the people that he was ruling over and basically told them, if you thought you had a bad under my dad, you ain't seen nothing. And I'm going to be harder on you. And I mean, just really started out ruling with an iron fist and the people didn't like it. And what ends up happening is there's a civil war and you have Israel <clears throat> break into two kingdoms. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And I don't have a map of this, but that's okay. Hey, what happened to my map over here with the 12 tribes of Israel? I'm looking at my kids. It was on the wall. It's not now. So it fell down at some point, and someone picked it up and did something with it. Anyone? Nobody knows. Okay. God, that's... Yeah. That, oh, I, yeah. <clears throat> That's parenting. That's how it works. <clears throat> so <clears throat> I'm telling you, I'd have a better chance of getting people in South Boston to talk about their neighbor in a murder investigation than to get my kids to tell me anything when something goes wrong. I don't know. I didn't see anything. I wasn't there. I have an alibi. Okay. So <clears throat> um, Mac, you know, the poster I'm talking about, yeah. go find it. Moses, go help Mac. Close the door so we don't have to listen to you when you knock everything over in my office. So the kingdom splits into a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, anyone know what that's called? Nope. <laughs> uh, 
We do have the kingdom of Israel, and we have the kingdom of Judah. Now, this is one of the most important periods in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, This is after King David, King Solomon. You have a civil war, and the nation of Israel breaks into a north and a south. The northern kingdom goes by the name Israel. The southern kingdom goes by the name of Judah. Now, this is slightly confusing because Judah is one of the 12 tribes. And Israel is the name that we give to the entire nation of Israel, all 12 of the tribes. So you have the north and the south. Now, what ends up happening is Jeroboam. So the I have a map that shows you this, but it's not here. So we'll just, we'll, we'll talk about the Mason-Dixon line, okay? Somewhere around here where there is a line that separates the north and the south. Jeroboam, the guy that is the king in the north, he has a problem because there's a city in the south that's kind of popular. Anyone want to guess what that city is? Jerusalem. And what do all the Jews have to do three times a year? They got to go to Jerusalem. So King Jeroboam in the northern kingdom doesn't like this idea because they had a civil war and they split. And he's thinking to himself, if I don't do something here, I'm going to lose a lot of people going to the southern kingdom every year. And pretty soon they're going to want to move down there because that's where they are doing the feast days, and that's where the temple is, and that's where the priesthood works out of. So what Jeroboam decides is, you know what, let's, let's look at a few of these verses. <clears throat> let's go to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12, and we'll go get into a couple of these, just so you know that I'm not lying, and that way you know where to look these up. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 27. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, who is the king of the southern kingdom we call Judah, uh, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah." So he was concerned that everyone was going to go down there. They were going to remember the Lord. They were going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to do the feast days. And now they're going to turn around. They're going to want to kill me. And I'm going to lose my position. So what does Jeroboam do? Jeroboam builds golden calves and told his people to worship them. He said, they were gods who brought you up out of Egypt. So let's continue reading the next couple verses and we'll see this. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Now, we should be able to guess that it's not going to go well for Jeroboam saying these things because he is making idols, he is commanding all the people to bow down and worship him, and he is giving the golden calves that he just commissioned to have made, he's giving them credit for doing what? For bringing Israel out of Egypt. 
obviously that was a big deal when God did that. And it's not okay that we're giving that credit to some golden calves. Verse 29, and he set the one in Bethel and the other put he in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. So you can see this guy is just really messing up. He is basically copying everything that the nation of Israel as a whole was supposed to be doing by following the Lord, and he makes a copy and he sets it up in the northern kingdom. So he made his own priesthood, he made his own feast days. If we continue reading down through 33, we see that he made uh, his own feast days as well. Let's look at verse 33. So we offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel. There is no feast in the eighth month. As far as the children of Israel go, the, the, the feast start in the seventh month, in the tenth day of the, sorry, um, that's of the civil calendar. And the, the first, uh, the tenth day of the first month, Nisan, that's when the spring feasts start. There's nothing in the eighth month. Hey, if you guys can't find them, just, yeah. Oh, really? Maybe. All right. So, now what ends up happening in 722, anyone want to give a guess what happens in 722, the next point on our timeline? That, that was 891. Who does? <clears throat> nope. No, so that is 170-something years later. So we go through many kings, and just to give you a running tally out of how many good kings were there in the northern kingdom, it's an easy number to remember. Zero, not a single one. In the southern kingdom, there are two. There are two for sure that I can think of. Maybe we can make an argument for more than that, but certainly two. Neither of the kingdoms did very well, but the northern kingdom was really, really bad. They were just horrible, wholly given to idolatry. So in 722, <clears throat> okay, the northern kingdom is taken captive by who? Uh... Assyria, Assyria, the Assyrians. Let's go with that. So they are taken captive by Assyrians, 722. What happens to them afterward? That's it. Bring it on up. Or actually, go get me like four thumbtacks, the kind that stick out of the wall, and I'll put it up on the wall here. What happens to the northern kingdom after they're taken captive by the Assyrians, 722? No. They do end up prisoners. They do taken back to Assyria, all of them. Not all of them. Don't get me wrong. Some of them escaped, but we're, we're not going to get into <clears throat> the details there. After they go to Assyria, they're taken captive. They're taken out of their land. What happens to them? They are slaves. Then what happens to them? They disappear to history. 
They are literally never heard from again. They're gone. Wiped off the map, okay? Now, they're not all killed. <clears throat> but here's what, here's what happened. The Assyrians had this method of taking slaves and prisoners. And what they would do, if all of you represented different countries, the Assyrians would take Louis's group. Yeah, can you hang it up right, like right there? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah, 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 as best you can. They would take Louis's group and they would take some and put them over here and some and put them over there and some and put them over there. Then they'd take Karen's group, her nation that they take slaves from, and they would mix them all in. Then they'd do the same with Stephanie and Nick and Wayne and everybody. So your group with your language and your culture and your customs and everything weren't in one spot. You were mixed up. And that way they believed that they could avoid someone rebelling and trying to escape or take them over or anything like that. Yeah, go ahead. Jump in. You know, I'm not sure. I think they were more concerned about just, you know, being, uh, oh, the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what the Assyrians did. If they made you learn the local customs and languages and all that stuff, I would assume they'd want you. Yeah, that looks perfect. Yeah. I would assume they'd want you to assimilate. But the important thing was you would lose your identity because you'd be mingled together with all these other people. Now, at a certain point, <clears throat> some of these people ended up, and we're not going to see it on, on this map, some of these people that mixed together with all these different groups went back and became what we read about in the New Testament, which are called Samaritans. Are, are a Samarit How are Samaritans talked about in the Bible? Yeah, they're not looked at in a good light. Okay. The Jews didn't like them. They weren't Gentiles, but they might as well have been. They were some kind of mix of quasi, you know, half Jew that were not accepted. So <clears throat> the Northern kingdom is taken away to Assyria and they're for all, for our purposes, they're gone. They're lost to history. We never really figure out what happened. They're somewhere, but that's it. The explanation that's given to us is that Assyria took the northern kingdom, which was made up of 10 tribes. And the two remaining tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, are the only two that remain. Here's the problem with this theory, which is 100% incorrect. And the theory causes some major doctrinal problems that a lot of groups hold on to. And I'll, and I'll show you kind of the issue we're up against. The reason this isn't true, there weren't 10 lost tribes, is because, number one, the land was divided up into 12 lots, one for each tribe. But those lots were not boundaries that the tribe couldn't cross. So here is Israel at the end of the book of Joshua. And at the end of this book, <clears throat> they broke Israel down into 
12 sections. There's actually more because uh, the tribe of Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh wanted to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which they were not supposed to do, but they asked and they asked and 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 God told them, okay, fine, you can have that area. But it was bad. It was it ended up being a bad deal for them. So God uh, divided up the land and gave these different portions to the 12 tribes. Now, do you want to take a picture now or? Okay. <laughs> Understand these were not geographical boundaries that had fences that they were not allowed to cross. This is just the portion of land that was given to each tribe. And there are reasons for it. So not only was it given to the tribe, but it broke down into the individual families got a portion of land. It was an inheritance and it was important for the structure of the nation of Israel. But these families intermarried. It wasn't that the tribe of Dan only married within the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Naphtali only married within the tribe of Naphtali. Number two, second problem that destroys this 10 lost tribes issue is that prior to Assyria taking them over in 722 BC, a substantial portion of the Northern Kingdom left and moved to the Southern Kingdom. Anyone want to render a guess as to why? That's right. So they didn't have to worship golden calves. You have to remember that all of the God-fearing, Bible-loving Jews in the Northern Kingdom, they said, uh, we're not okay with this. We're not just going to hang out and worship golden calves that you set up and you tell us that that's our God. I know who our God is, and he's down in Jerusalem, and that's where we're moving. Honey, pack the bags. And the families would up and move to the southern kingdom. And this happened in mass. Let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 14 through 16. If you're at 1 Kings, just go to the right a couple books. You'll end up in 2 Chronicles. We'll go to chapter 11 because I want to see that I want you to see that I'm not making this up. It's actually in here. I'm going to start in verse 13. 2 Chronicles chapter 11, starting in verse 13. And the priests and the Levites that were in all Israel resorted to him out of all their coasts. For the Levites left their suburbs and their possession and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office unto the Lord. And he ordained him priests for the high places and for the devils and for the calves which he had made. And after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon." So first, the Levites decided to up and leave because they didn't have anything to do. And then it said that all of the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem. 
So all the Jews from the northern kingdom that wanted to worship God said, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to go south and we're going to worship God. It also talks about all the God-hating, pagan-worshiping, idolatrous Jews in the south. Guess what they did? They went north. People voted with their feet, so to speak. They said, no, we don't want to believe in God. We want to worship devils. So we're going to go up north where it's accepted. Because you got to remember, worshiping idols was a capital crime. So it was a serious issue. People weren't okay with it. They're like, yep, we're going to split over this one. Number three, later when Asa reigned as king in the south, another great company came from the north. And this is Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 9. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So again, all 12 tribes mingled together. All 12 tribes were probably represented in every geographical area in the nation of Israel. Either way, we know that multiple tribes were present after the Assyrians took away the northern kingdom. Years after the deportation by Assyria... King Hezekiah, who was a king in the southern kingdom of Judah, because remember, the northern kingdom is gone at this point. So several years after the deportation of Assyria, King Hezekiah of Judah issued a call to all Israel to come and worship in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. Eighty years later, King Josiah, he's one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible, another king of Judah also issued a call and an offering for the temple was received from Manasseh and Ephraim and all the remnant of Israel. And this we find in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 9. And when they came to Hilkiah, the high priest, they delivered the money that was brought unto the house of God, which the Levites that kept the doors had gathered at the hand of Manasseh and Ephraim and of all the remnant of Israel and all Judah and Benjamin, and they returned to Jerusalem. So here we read that the priest gathered an offering from Manasseh and Ephraim. Well, Manasseh and Ephraim were two of the 10 tribes from the Northern Kingdom. How did they do that? If all the 10 tribes from the Northern Kingdom were taken away and captive by the Assyrians, it doesn't work. Now, this verse lists a minimum of four tribes and it also includes, quote, all the remnant of Israel. So there obviously can't be 10 lost tribes if four of them are present in this story that takes place after the Assyrians took away the northern kingdom. Are you picking up what I'm putting down? All right. All the tribes were representative. All the tribes were represented after the northern kingdom was taken away. And it's because they didn't stay in their little plot of land. You had a reason to move here because you fell in love with this girl and you got married or you had business that brought you here. People moved all over the country. They, they were allowed to do that. That was fine. The only thing the Jews weren't allowed to do was marry Gentiles. Other than that, it didn't matter. So they were mixed already. Then when there was the civil war, the God-fearing Jews moved south and the idolatrous Jews moved north. So again, everyone mixed together. So if you want to say that the Jews in the northern kingdom that were taken away from 
Syrians were never seen again. Okay, that's fine. I mean, you know, it, it's very hard to try to designate where they ended up and who they were. But we can't say that 10 tribes were gone because there weren't 10 tribes in the north. All 12 tribes were represented in the northern kingdom. All 12 tribes were represented in the southern kingdom. Is that clear? Okay. Go ahead, Nick. Uh-huh. It's a great point, Nick. Can I get to that at the end? Okay, so yeah, in five more minutes, I hope to be done with this and if I and make sure I answer that question because that's the point. Nick, the question Nick asked for those of you that are listening at home, who cares? Which is a good question to ask whenever you're being taught something. Who cares that 10 lost tribes are lost? What does that mean to us? Who does that benefit? Okay, great question. And and that that is the point we're going to come to at the end. All right, so let's see. Uh, the fourth point, the, uh, another reason that this doesn't work. People misunderstand the labels Israel and Judah when you're reading through the Old Testament. In between 1 Kings to 2 Chronicles, you have to understand that there was a civil war, and when it says Judah, it's not talking about one tribe. It's talking about the southern kingdom. And when it says Israel, it is not talking about all of the nation of Israel, it's talking about only the northern kingdom. And it's easy to get confused if you if you misunderstand that. The name Israel is used to represent the whole northern kingdom, uh, and the name Judah is used to represent the whole southern kingdom. The Assyrians, as we said, implemented their policy of mixing people together. And later on, the folks that resettled did so in Samaria. The resulting mixed quasi-Jewish population became known as the Samaritans. Uh, what's another quasi-Jewish group of people? We just talked about them last week. The Edomites. Good job, Wayne. Give him, mark it down, one gold star for Wayne. Uh, the Edomites. We talked about them last week. What famous family came from the Edomites? The Herods. Very good, Louis. <clears throat> All right, so let's go to 586 B.C. What happened in 586 B.C.? What? Okay. We have the Babylonians. <clears throat> the baby lionses. The Babylonians come uh, to take captive the southern kingdom. Keep in mind, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were wildly wicked, and they had to be dealt with. And this is, does anyone know why the southern kingdom was taken away captive? So I'm not going to bring up the verses just because I can't remember where it is. But I'll tell you the story briefly because, you know, that's what you pay for. You're going to get the whole deal here. When... When God was talking to Moses and then later on Joshua, he said, when you come into the land, you're going to do something. You've never done it yet, but I got a command for you, and you're going to start doing it when you move to the land. Anyone know what it was? Well, no, but they were going to kill everyone there. That's good. What's that? Saturdays? Nope. They were already keeping the Sabbath beforehand. What's that? You're getting there. <laughs> Moses? 
Very good. Every seven years, they have to let the land rest. So there is a Sabbath of days, which is Saturday. Every seven days, there is a Sabbath of years. And I'm not going to get, like I said, we're already so far into the weeds. The way God worked it out, he said, you're going to sow the field, prune the vineyards, pick the crops, harvest, and have your produce six years. On the seventh year, you're not going to sow seed. You're not going to harvest. You're not going to pull weeds. You're going to let the land lie fallow. You're just going to let the birds of the air go to it. Whatever grows, that's fine. Anyone can have at it and eat it. It's there for the animals. You can go through and pick the weeds, but you are not planting. It's my land. It gets a rest. How long were the Jews in Babylon captive? Washington? No. 70 years. Good. 70 years. And it was not about 70 years. It was 70 years to the day. Now, how long did they not let the land rest? So let's start with this. They get to Israel. They take over. They all have their spot and they start farming. And year six comes and they farm. And year seven comes, and what do they do on that first seventh year, Washington? They farm it. They didn't obey God the first year. How many years did they disobey God? Nope, nope, nope. 490 years. Now, if you divide 490 by seven... Every seventh year, they're supposed to take off. Guess how many years that equals? 70 years. This is one of the most sobering math problems in the entire Bible. God said, my land will rest every seventh year. And if you don't give it that rest, I will. And God made it happen. He said, I will remove you from the land and you will remain slaves in Babylon for 70 years to the day. But I said, my land will rest. The Babylonians took the Jews captive. Who led them back in the land? Nope. Nehemiah didn't have anything to say with it. He was a slave. So Daniel was a prophet that was in Babylon. It was the king. No, you, we read about this in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which I know everyone is wishing they paid better attention to right now. <laughs> nope. Okay, but you're, you're getting closer, Joe. What Joe, now, Joe just guessed Alexander who was the leader of what nation? Greece. Who took them captive? The Babylonians. Who was the world leader in between the Babylonians and the Greeks? 
Nope. Okay. Cyrus, king of Persia. The Persians took over Babylon. There was a change as a world power during those 70 years. So the Babylonians took the Jews captive, but it was the Persians that released them and said, go back to your land and you can rebuild the wall and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple and you can go back. He not only did that, he paid for everything they needed. He said, you can have the lumber out of my forests. The the Persian king even gave the Jews a tax-exempt status. Did you know that? A tax-exempt status for churches is biblical. He said, you Jews won't have to pay any taxes, any tribute, nothing when you go back to the land. It was something else. So the way it worked was, and you guys are getting a lot. I understand I'm feeding you with a fire hose tonight. (laughs) So what you got to understand is that Babylon, Babylon was a walled city. And when I say walled city, you cannot fathom what I am talking about. We're talking about walls 100 feet tall and 80 feet thick. We're talking about walls so massive that they would have chariot races around them and they would have a half dozen chariots run abreast, okay, around the wall on a track. The Babylon had a river running through it, which I believe it was the Euphrates River. The Babylon was completely self-sufficient. They grew agriculture inside the city. They had a river that supplied them with water. They were so fortified, it was an impossible city to ever break down the walls of, lay siege to. The, so the Persians laid siege to Babylon, and the Babylonians didn't even bother standing guard and watching them. They just laughed from inside the walls. They knew that they were impenetrable. Like I said, they grew their own crops. They had their own livestock. They had their water source. They're like, we don't care that we're under siege. We can live here forever. The Persian general, whose name escapes me, went upriver and at an appointed time diverted the river in one of the greatest military maneuvers in the history of the world. This is taught at West Point, this battle. I have books in my office that talk about this. At nighttime, the Persian army, with the water now down to this level, walked under the gates where the river was, and as the Babylonians partied and were drunk and hung over, They went through and took over Babylon. It was such a seamless victory that there were people in Babylon that didn't know they had been taken over for two weeks. They said not one person had to die. Now, the most impressive part about all of this, and I feel, Moses, grab me my phone. I need to look up a verse. It's in Isaiah, but the odds of me being able to find it quickly 
are pretty slim. Let me see how good I am. I'm going to get there in one second, but I'm going to see if I can. So now let me ask you this. When something like this would happen, thank you. The Persians, what would they usually do with the Babylonians that they took over? They would not. They would make them slaves. Ready for this? What would they do with the Babylonian slaves? They would kill them. Because you don't, you can only, you know, I guess use so many slaves. Okay. So that's normally what would happen. So what the Persians would do is they would take the Babylonians for slaves. Isaiah chapter 45. Oh, I was one, one chapter away. They would take the Babylonians as slaves and they would kill all the slaves of the Babylonians. And that was what you would do to your enemies to kind of rub salt in the wound. They would have to be your slaves forever now. So an elderly prophet named Daniel, who is living in Babylon, and keep in mind, was at one point second in command of the entire nation of Babylon comes out when Cyrus, the king of Persia, who showed up two weeks later, when Cyrus enters, Daniel goes to him and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah and he says, I have a message for you. This message is from God and it was written hundreds of years ago. And he says, thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. That's what it says. And he's reading this. Daniel's reading this to Cyrus, king of Persia. And Cyrus goes, oh, that's my name. Whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gate shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron and will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. God describes to Cyrus how he was going to get into the city and names the gates by name and Cyrus by name. The Persian king Cyrus is so impressed <clears throat> that he says, surely your God is the true God. None of the Jews will die today. <laughs> so they keep him around for a bit. Uh, the Jews do serve Persians. And then we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah how they are released. They're allowed to go back to Jerusalem. and. Um, the Persian king funds the whole project. Okay, good question. I don't know who brought it up, but that got us off in the weeds a little bit further. All right, so here's a question for you. When the Jews go back to Israel, how many of them go back? 
Nope. Moses? Nope. No. All of them is the wrong side of the spectrum. Wash? <laughs> no, but it's pretty bad. So we find this in Ezra uh, chapter 2, verses 64 and 65. The total number of Jews that go back to Israel is 42,360. And this is of a number that we believe could quite possibly have been a million or more. Uh, in Ezra chapter 2, verses 64 and 65, the whole congregation together was 40 and 2,303 score. Besides their servants, their maids, of whom there were 7,337. So if you want to add the servants and their maids, you get a total of 49,697. That means that the vast majority of the Jews remained in Babylon, current day, or at the time uh, of the writing, Persia. They remained behind. They don't go back to Israel. They don't go back to Jerusalem. Now, once they are back in the land, <clears throat> they build the temple, the city, and its wall. And these events occur in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, after these, so this is when they are released from Persia. After this, they are in the land. There is roughly 450 years until uh, the birth of Christ. <clears throat> um, the term Jew and Israelite, we find, are synonymous. One of the arguments is that there's a difference between the Jews and the Israelites, and one group is legitimate and one is illegitimate. Mac? Yeah. So I'm going to say, if so my opinion off the cuff, the question was, does God still want the Jews only to marry Jews today? I'm going to say yes. Okay? And I'll, I'll give you reasons for that in a little bit. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Now, we're just going to go through a couple of portions of Scripture to show that we read about Jews, Israelites, and the 12 tribes and those phrases are used synonymously from this point up until and through the New Testament. <clears throat> Ezra calls the returning remnant of uh, Jews eight times and Israel 40 times. Uh, Nehemiah uses the term uh, Jews 11 times and Israel 22 times. Uh, Nehemiah also speaks of all of Israel being back in the land. The remnant who returned from Babylon is represented as the nation in the book of Malachi. In the New Testament, the same thing is true. Uh, Jesus said that he offered himself to the nation, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Tribes other than Judah are mentioned specifically in the New Testament as being represented in the land. In Matthew, Luke, Philippians, uh, Acts, James, Anna knew her tribal identity was the tribe of Asher. We read about that in Luke chapter 2. Paul, he knew who was the tribe of what? Paul, the apostle Paul. What tribe was he? It was Benjamin. Very good, Nick. <clears throat> One out of 12 guests. You're a lucky guy. <laughs> uh, the New Testament speaks of Israel 75 times and uses the word Jews 174 times. 
at the Feast of Pentecost, Peter cries, you men of Judea. Uh, in Acts 2, you find you men of Israel. In Acts 2, you find all of the house of Israel. And I say all that to say this. Nowhere in the Bible does it mention or give support for the idea that there are 10 lost tribes. We don't know where they are. We don't know what happened. They're gone forever. And we only have these two tribes left. Now, to answer Nick's earlier question, why does any of this matter to us, Patrick? Who really cares? Well, numerous theories have come up concerning the 10 lost tribes. One is that they migrated and settled in uh, Europe and then later in North America. A second theory is that they ended up in Central America. You want to know who teaches that one? Yeah, the Mormons, right? Central America. Because who visited Central America? Okay, Jesus. Jesus went to Central America, set up his whole shebang, and then later shows up in upstate New York in the woods to give uh, Joseph Smith golden tablets and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. This is not, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the Book of Mormon tale. No, Jesus did not go to Central America. Jesus, after uh, he ascended into heaven, after the three days, he went to sit on the right hand of the throne of God, and there he remains until he comes back. He did not make any other trips uh, anywhere else around the world. Okay, so the point of these theories are to accomplish two goals. One, to bring illegitimacy to the current nation of Israel, and two, to bring legitimacy to another group. And there are lots of groups that claim that they are made up of the nation of Israel. Well, how? Well, because of these 10 lost tribes. And they say that to be able to uh, tell themselves that they are somehow uh, the true recipients of God's promises, and they are God's chosen people and the Jews are not. It is one version of a terribly unbiblical, horrible idea called replacement theology. Replacement theology is specifically that Christianity and Christians have replaced the nation of Israel, and we are actually God's chosen people now, and the Jews have forfeited those promises because they rejected the Messiah. It is nonsense. It is nowhere in the Bible. We know this for several reasons. One of the reasons is that, <clears throat> sorry, if anyone wants, sometimes you guys take pictures. Does anyone want this before I erase it? Okay. <clears throat> there is a different origin, mission, and destiny for the church and for Israel. They both have a different origin, a different mission, and a different destiny. They are not the same. They do not they are never the same, okay? They're two different groups. The idea of the 10 lost tribes is to try to take away legitimacy of the Jews that live in Israel today and say that they have no right to the land. So guess who are fans of this idea, okay? Arab Muslims, the PLO, modern-day neo-Nazis and skinheads, I mean, if you subscribe to this idea, you are with some losers. 
Okay. And it is the most anti-biblical, anti-Semitic idea you can come across. God tells us that we need to bless the nation of Israel, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is 100% anti-biblical. Who is the most famous Jew that we've ever heard of? Jesus. Okay. Christians cannot be anti-Semitic. Okay. Jesus is Jewish. It's just a stupid idea. So, Nick, that's the reason that it happens is because we, uh, people are trying to Ill- illegitimize the nation of Israel and bring legitimacy to another group. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Okay, so the question was, there is a, or uh, the statement that needs correction is, there's a Muslim temple where the Jewish temple needs to be built. Yes, so the name of the uh, Muslim temple is called the Dome of the Rock. And here's the question, and this is debated, because if your eschatology is like mine, meaning you are waiting for the second coming of Christ, a rapture, and the 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year period, where here on earth there's going to be horrible, horrible wrath of God poured out, then there is going to be an event in the middle of those seven years. So you have seven years, And in the Bible, those seven years are described as seven years. They're described as two, three and a half year periods. And they're also described as two 1,260 day periods. I think that's the way that the Jewish calendar breaks it up into two equal halves. And at the exact center of those seven years, what happens? Nope. Nope. You got it. The Antichrist has an event. What does the Antichrist do? David? He does. What's that place called? It is the temple. Specifically, where in the temple? The holiest of holies. So in the temple, so this is going to be a really small, crude drawing. Okay, you have the temple. (laughs) yeah this is the tabernacle technically not the temple you have three sections the innermost section is called the holiest of holies there are only two items in that room it's a very small room what are the two items that go in that room mac yeah no ark of the covenant and wash The mercy seat. Very good. So the mercy seat is the lid for the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, the thing that the Nazis pulled off before Indiana Jones killed them all with the wrath of God. All right. So no George Lucas fans here. That's fine. Yeah, it was God that did it, but he did it because he loves Harrison Ford. All right. So so in the holiest of holies, Uh, How about this, David? I'm going to give you another one to redeem yourself. How do you get in the holiest of holies? 
What is the entrance way there? Hold on. <laughs> That's good. Okay, it is actually not a door. Oh, we could call it a door, but specifically, what is it? Steph, you want to guess? Well, that's a different, yeah. What's that? It's a veil. And we're going to talk about it, believe it or not. I mean, not this week. Like, we're already done at an hour. But, you know, we're going to get to Acts 26 next week. So, <clears throat> in the holiest of holies, the, who is allowed to go in there once a year? Steph. The highest priest. The high priest. And he's only allowed to go in there one day a year. And that day is? Mac? No. No, not Christmas. <laughs> Yom Kippur, very good. And he only goes in there after great ceremonial washing and preparation. And when he goes in there, he walks through the veil. Very tall, very thick, very special veil. What happened to the veil when Jesus died on the cross? Nick, it ripped in two. Okay, one of the four special events that happened after Jesus died on the cross. Question from Stephanie. Yes. So when the high priest would go into the holiest of holies, there are two interesting things they did. Number one, the high priest wore bells. And everybody with bated breath would stand outside the holiest of holies and listen to the bells jingle jangling. And if those bells stopped, that was bad. Because remember, the high priest, the idea was the high priest was to go in and be in the very presence of God. So he had to be without sin. So there was a great amount of ceremonial washing and preparation, and he would go in to do his business. And if he went in there with sin, guess what? He would literally drop dead. And yes, they tied a rope around his waist so they could drag his dead body out. I have no idea. I could look it up if you want, but it happened more than once. So, <clears throat> so during the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years that start sometime after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to stand up in the holiest of holies, and he is going to declare himself to be God. He's going to stop the sacrifices, and he's going to declare, I am God. Now, if that is going to happen, and the Bible says it will very clearly many, many times, what must happen first? Stephanie, the temple must be built. There is no temple today. What's in the way, Stephanie? The Dome of the Rock, a Muslim temple that was built to mock the takeover of the Jews' holy land. The Arab Muslims have done this around the world several times. We can go over the history of that. When they take over an area and conquer it, they will build a mosque and, and one of their temples, and they will do it in a site that will cause those that they have conquered to be ashamed of forever. And what were they trying to do 21 years ago? They were trying to build a giant Muslim temple across the street from the Twin Towers. Yep. They do it everywhere they go around the world to remind everyone. 
that they are a nation of, they are a religion of peace. Do you know that that is two lies? They are not a religion and they are not peaceful. Those are two lies. Okay, they're a geopolitical organization hell-bent on taking over the world. They're not about peace. They're about killing everybody that disagrees with them. That is what they have done from start to finish. If you don't believe me, find someone from Lebanon and ask them. Yes, Washington. I believe so. I believe the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat are going to show back up. If I am wrong, then I'm going to amend that statement and say, I believe the mercy seat will show up. The reason is the Ark of the Covenant is made out of wood and it is overlaid with gold. The mercy seat is solid gold. So the mercy seat does not deteriorate. All right. So the idea is that or the question, and this was a really long answer to Stephanie's question, does the Dome of the Rock have to be moved or removed in order for the Jews to build their temple in order for the Antichrist to stand up in it in the end times? So some folks say yes, absolutely. Others say no, it doesn't. Technically, they can both exist geographically. They're not in the way of each other. I honestly don't know. Joe, it looks like you have a question there. You're thinking something. Do you have to build it somewhere else? Like, for example, the Jews? Spot? Nope. It has it's got to be in one exact spot. Okay. Yep, I know. It's tough. Washington? Well, let me tell you, uh, there are plenty of people that have tried to destroy the Dome of the Rock. There have been Jews with, you know, like suicide bomb vests that have tried to run up there and blow it up. It does not work well. Oh, yeah. Because the the Muslims shoot them dead before they can get within 100 yards of it. Jews aren't allowed there at all. Remember, the nation of peace and tolerance, right? Arab Muslims. Yeah, they won't let Jews in their temple. You can't. Even, if you're a Christian, you go over to visit Israel. You can go there. You can go and you can visit and you can see it. You can go in there. Yeah, but it is high security, and Jews are not allowed anywhere nearby. Well, if it has to move, obviously that is what people are wondering is how is the Dome of the Rock going to move because Arab Muslims don't look kindly on that. Um, Well, there's a lot of theories. One of the theories is the Antichrist is going to be a world leader who brings peace to the world, and maybe he's going to be a smooth talker, and he can get it done. Maybe there's going to be a supernatural act of God. Maybe there's going to be a natural disaster. We have no idea. Maybe the Dome of the Rock actually isn't in the place where the temple needs to be built, and the temple can be built without disturbing the Dome of the Rock, and it can all work out. Either way, the only thing that I know is going to happen is that the temple will be built because the Bible says it will. So I'm a believer in that. It's not allegorical. It is literally going to happen. All right. So with that, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Let's start verse 1, and we'll be out of here in about an hour and a half. All right. We ate up all of our time. 
So we are going to just jump into Acts 26 next week. It's already been an hour and five minutes. So we got through the top section. Next week, we'll go through these. So if you want to read ahead, you've read through Acts 26, hopefully in preparation for tonight. If you want to write down these verses in John, Luke, and Matthew, you can read a few verses that'll help prepare you for next week and what we're going to talk about. And if you read those verses, you'll probably even know some answers to some of my questions. Any questions before we dismiss? Yes, Barbara, what do you got? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, good question. So the Wailing Wall, if you just Google Wailing Wall and you're going to see a big stone wall, very tall, and you're going to see a whole bunch of people in front of it and you're going to see some uh jews that go there and they will write down prayers on and roll them up in a little scroll and they'll stick them into the cracks of the walls and they will stand at the wall and the hasidic jews will sit there and they'll rock back and forth as they pray and when you go to the wailing wall you have to have a head covering on um as a man you know it can be a baseball cap it doesn't have to be a kippah or if you speak yiddish a yarmulke uh, but you have to have your head covered. And, and it's another site that you can go and see if you go to uh, Jerusalem. The Wailing Wall is the closest distance that any Jew can get to the Temple Mount. So as far as the Dome of the Rock, the Wailing Wall is the closest that they can get to and be near their holy site, the Temple Mount. Yes, Mom. No, I don't know what the Wailing Wall... I don't know the age at which it was built. No, no, there literally wasn't a single stone left. Yeah, I don't know. Wow. All right. David? That's fine. Yeah. Cyrus, king of Persia. He was God's anointed. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. So, uh, okay, so a couple things. Um, this gets us into an interesting vein. So the question David brought up is, in Isaiah chapter 45, God calls Cyrus his anointed. Cyrus was not Jewish. He was Persian. He was totally pagan. So what does anointed mean? So it means chosen. Okay, so you are used of God. You have a purpose that God's going to use you for. God calls or God uses several pagans to do his will throughout the Bible. Uh, Cyrus was one of them. Now, keep in mind, Cyrus was the first king that took over Babylon. Who was the king that let them go? <laughs> it's okay. Artaxerxes. <clears throat> So again, God used Artaxerxes to release the Jews from slavery, 
give them money, give them lumber, give them protection, give them a tax exempt status, send them to the land with letters stating that if anyone mess with these guys along the way, you're going to deal with me. And let me tell you, the Persians had some really creative horrible ways of killing you if they didn't like you. So nobody messed with them. Along with that, they had an army, a standing army of a million men. Oh, yeah. They were masters of combat, um, ultimately defeated by Alexander the Great later on. So God used Cyrus. He used Artaxerxes. He used uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar we read about in the book of Daniel. Do you know the only portion of the Bible written by a Gentile in the entire Bible. Do you know what it is? It's in, it's no, it's in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar writes one chapter. It's the only portion of the entire Bible written by a Gentile. Yes. Nebuchadnezzar wrote about when God removed him from power and it talks about how he practically, it sounds like he turned into a wild animal and uh, ate the grass of the field. And I mean, it was, it was, it's an insane bit of writing. And Daniel took care of him during that time. And then Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and he came back, got his senses back and recognized that God was the one that was in charge and that blessed him. And he wrote a chapter of the Bible about it. I think it was either Daniel chapter three or five. I don't remember. For, it's I'm blanking. But anyway, what you got to remember is that <clears throat> when God wants his will done, it's going to happen. And if one of his people aren't going to do it, he's going to get a pagan to do it. He doesn't care. And God will anoint these pagans to do it. Some of them, like Nebuchadnezzar, I 100% believe that he is saved. Okay, he does start worshiping the Lord God of Israel, and I believe he is in heaven. Uh, other people that God anoints and uses, it, I don't know. It doesn't say. Um, so on top of that, one thing that you find that's really interesting, if you want to study this out, go back and read Genesis, uh, the last seven or eight chapters of Genesis when you're reading about Joseph and his relationship with Pharaoh. I believe that uh, Pharaoh at the time of Joseph was probably saved. Uh, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar was. Daniel, you got to remember, when, when they all go back to Israel, guess who doesn't go back with them? Daniel. Okay, Daniel doesn't go back. The prophet Daniel stays in Babylon. And one of the things, what did they do? What did Nebuchadnezzar do with Daniel when he recognized how talented he was and that he could see visions and dream, read dreams? What did he? He did, but he gave him a special job. Do you remember what it was? Who did he put him in charge of? <laughs> he put him in charge of the astrologers, the people that studied the stars and tried to um, uh, the uh, um, the sorcerers and the magician. Yep. No, they didn't. But he put Daniel in charge of that. Now, when did, so Daniel started a school. He was in charge of the astrologers and the soothsayers and all of these guys. And he stayed there <clears throat> his entire life. And when he was there, he taught these guys about the Bible and what was coming. 
And when do these guys show up again? This group, Daniel is dead and gone for hundreds of years. But all of a sudden, but this group is waiting, watching the stars, and waiting for one star to show up and take a certain path. And the wise men from the east, where's the east? Okay. The east, here's Jerusalem. The east is Babylon. That's where they came from. The wise men were Babylonians trained at the school that Daniel set up in Babylon. And they followed the star out there. And remember, when they show up in Matthew, they go to Herod. And they say, where's the king? And what did it say? How did Herod feel? What were his feelings? Wasn't angry. Not jealous. He did want to know, but it's he was scared. And not only was he scared, who else was scared? Let's go to Matthew. Now, this is important. <clears throat> go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. Tell me who was scared. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. All of Jerusalem. When they showed up, okay, how about, let me ask you this. How many came from Babylon? It wasn't just three. I hate to tell you, but every nativity scene you've seen in your entire life is wrong. Number one, there are no animals there. Find it in the Bible. Not one animal is mentioned anywhere. Okay, and I know we sing the hymns, the cattle were lulling, the cows were asleep. The animals weren't in there. And there weren't just three wise men. And when they showed up, Jesus wasn't a baby. He was a toddler. He was two years old. Bible says all those things. When he, when the wise men showed up, they went to Herod, the king, and said, we want to worship the king. Where is he? He was scared, and all of Jerusalem was scared. Why was all of Jerusalem scared? Because there was an entourage. Keep in mind, they traveled from Babylon all the way up the Euphrates into Syria and then down south to Jerusalem. They traveled a long, long, long ways, and they traveled with tens of thousands of guys. There there were enough people there to easily wipe Jerusalem off of the map if they wanted to. Okay, It it wasn't three guys and a camel holding a couple jars to bring to Jesus. It was a massive, massive entourage, and all of Jerusalem was scared. What's that? They did not. Jesus? No, in Bethlehem. He he flees. No. No, what happens is then he Herod tells him, hey, when you find him, let me know. You got it. I want to go and worship them. And then when they didn't and they went another way, he says, go through the land and kill everyone up to how old? Two years old. Why? Because that's how old Jesus was. He wasn't an infant anymore. He said, just kill them all. Okay. So 
Where were we going with that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Daniel stays behind in Babylon, sets up a school, teaches the wizards. Wizards see the star. They follow it out, come to uh, Jerusalem to try to find Jesus. And then it goes to Bethlehem. Good. Did I answer your question there, David? Yeah, so Cyrus and the Persians, I don't know. I think there were a lot of people that got saved because Daniel was there and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were there. Uh, Ezekiel, the prophet, was there. I think a lot of people uh, did worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and get saved, but um, it doesn't specifically say, or if it does, I don't know where it says. Yeah, Washington. Instead of 483 and have them in captivity for. Well, no, or at least I don't. But what we do know is that the 70 years was a specific amount of time because, and this is important, <clears throat> when Jesus, or how about this, in between this period right here, <clears throat> when Jesus announces to the world that he's a king. And how did he do that? Nope, not at his birth. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Okay. That day that he was showing himself to be king and the day that the decree went out to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem under Artaxerxes was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, or was it chapter 9? I think it was Daniel chapter 9. And it was told that between this day and this day was going to be exactly this number of days. And God called it to the day. And he said, from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the Prince, will be this many days, this many days, this many days, and this many days. And when you do the math and you go over it, you find out from the day that they were, Cyrus signed off and said, you guys can go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem till the day Jesus showed up on the, on the donkey was the exact number of days. Okay, and that was the 69 weeks of years and then the 70th year was is coming and that's here because remember that the jews rejected jesus as the messiah if they accepted him as the messiah well then we would have had all 70 weeks right there and it would have been fulfilled but that was i think god's plan from the beginning i don't know if i'm i might just be going too fast and be in the weeds too much to be helpful right now i'm not sure okay good question all right. Uh, it's like 10 to eight. So I'm going to call it. Uh, <laughs> I'll be here all night uh, for questions, <laughs> but I'm going to do it with some coffee and some snacks in my hand. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Uh, Rick, you want to pray for us, sir? Amen. Okay, that was a great time. Uh, we certainly went all over the map. And next week, I promise we will be in Acts chapter 26 
and no other nonsense. We'll just get right into it because we only have three more chapters and we're done with the book of Acts. Okay. And yes, sir. Yeah, give it to me. What's up? 40 what? Who is? You're turning 40? Is Barbara turning 40? <laughs> you, and your, you and Barbara, 40 years tomorrow? Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> well, we were here. <laughs> Wash, did you cut it? Okay, good. Go ahead.